bread because I probably will kick it. Um, and then, then you guys don't want to eat dirty bread. So, uh, well, good morning, everyone. My name is Alex. I serve as one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you guys. Question for us this morning to kind of ask, uh, rhetorical, so just maybe think about it in your brain. What makes a good leader? What makes a good leader? Now, I'm sure if I uh, went around the room and I asked each individual person, hey, what makes a good leader? Uh, plenty of you would start to give me some different qualities or characteristics. Some of you might say great communication skills. Others might say they have to be really charismatic and be able to draw people in. Some people might say no great listening skills. You might mention they have to be really organized and be able to organize things and people. No, that, well, they have to be great visionaries. They have to be able to see big picture and dream and think far ahead. And as we sit here and we think about, hey, what is a leader? What's a great leader? What makes a great leader? We start to think about, okay, there's dozens of books. There's podcasts. There's conferences. There's all this stuff that's kind of out there, these resources that tell you about leadership. And as you start diving in even a little bit more to all of those things, you start to realize that they all have different conversations on leadership even. They're, okay, here's 12 steps on how to be a better leader. Here's how to develop and raise up leaders. Here's how to find out your leadership type. And, and then you just kind of walk through all of it and you kind of come to the end after doing all the research or hearing all the podcasts, reading the books, and you start to realize, oh, wait, nobody actually agrees on what a good leader is. And if we kind of consider that for ourselves in our own minds, in our own hearts, as we would describe a good leader, what we end up doing is honestly just imposing our own vision onto what a great leader is. And so we all have different definitions of great leadership specifically. You see, the Jews, the, the Israelites, they had that same issue. When it came time for them to be uh, see the Messiah come to fruition, as they walked through their life and their family lines, they kind of realized, oh, oh my gosh, there's this Messiah who's going to come and he's going to be victorious and he's going to lead us to uh, be a great nation once again. But in all honesty, if we look at what their vision for the Messiah was, it was just something that they painted in their own minds and in their own hearts. They didn't actually uh, see what the scriptures were calling them to see who the Messiah is supposed to be like. So the question for us this morning then to beg for ourselves is, have you ever had a leader that wasn't what you wanted, but was exactly what you needed? Have you ever had a leader who wasn't what you wanted, but exactly what you needed? Because as we look at Jesus, he may not be the leader that we wanted or want, but he is the leader that we need. And today in Matthew 12, we're going to see the scriptures tell us exactly what this Messiah, this king is supposed to look like and what he's supposed to be. So uh, read with me. I'm just going to read those verses again. Matthew chapter 12. I'm actually going to start in verse 14 because it helps bridge the gap for us. It says this, but the Pharisees went out and plotted against him, how they might kill him. Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. Large crowds followed him and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So the first point we see in the text is that Jesus is the healing king. Verse 14 is the transition for us because if we remember last week in Ricky's sermon, he walked through that 
first section in Matthew chapter 12, where there's disagreements between the Pharisees and Jesus and his disciples, right? The disciples, they're grabbing the grain off and they're eating it on the middle of the Sabbath. And then they go into the synagogue and Jesus sees a man with a withered hand and he heals him on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees just start going crazy over this. They get angry. They're frustrated. They're saying, Jesus is breaking the law. And they start to plot against Jesus. Now, as they plot against him, it's not like they're just like, okay, cool, kick him out of town, get rid of him, or discredit his name, or no, it gets to the point where in verse 14, this is the first time we actually see it kind of climax to this point, to where they start plotting to actually murder Jesus. It's not just like something where they're just like, see you later, go away, guy. But they're thinking, we need to take care of this man, and we need him gone completely. So Jesus responds in that. He, he responds and he turns and he says, okay, we need to withdraw because it's not time for me to die yet. And so as he withdraws the crowds, they follow him again. And the text tells us that he heals the entire crowd. He heals them all who were with him, right? And, and as we're sitting here and we're thinking about how Jesus interacts with the crowd, he interacts with them uh, so patiently as, as they follow. I mean, could you imagine masses of people just following you around all the time? Like even as an extrovert, I'm like, oh, that, I get exhausted by that constantly. And yet Jesus is patient enough to deal with the crowds and to continue to do ministry. And as we watch Jesus's ministry over the last 12 chapters, as we've studied the book of Matthew, how does he interact with people when he goes to heal them? He doesn't just stand before everybody, kind of wave his Jedi hand and say, you're healed. And then they're healed. And then he sends them away. But what he does is he interacts with each person one-on-one, -on -one, does he not? As we read the countless stories of what Jesus is doing, he's the type of king who doesn't just kind of from a, a stage go, boom, you're done, you're healed, see you later. But what he does is he actually meets with the people. He talks with them individually, gets to know what's happening and why they're, why they're sick and what they need healing from. This is the type of king that Jesus is. He's one who interacts with the people. And so as I think of us today, and I think of Jesus's relationship with us today, this very day here, Jesus doesn't just look to the masses of us and just say, bam, everything in your life is all better now. See you later. But he meets us on an individual level. He meets with us all personally. By the power of the Spirit, somehow God interacts with each one of us on a one-to-one -one basis. But at the same time, Jesus is with us all completely through the power of the Spirit. I don't know how it works. It's God, but uh, that's the only way to explain it. But as we sit here and think about it, I mean, the moments where I really, really have great intimacy with Christ are not when I'm like in some giant crowd and it's just kind of like, bam, and all of us get healed all at once kind of a thing. But it's those moments where I'm spending intimate time one-on-one -on -one with Jesus and I'm, and I'm praying and I'm talking with him, I'm reading his word, I'm studying, or, or maybe there's a sermon that kind of hits and punches me pretty good in the gut. And it's just a sweet, intimate moment where Jesus just uses his spirit to kind of continue to stir up my own affections and my heart for him. I know that Jesus is doing the same exact thing this week, that he's meeting with people individually and he's continuing to move in our lives. And this is how he works. Because if we look at our world, if we look out to our world, it's clearly a fallen state. It's a harsh world. There's sickness that can get us at any time. The mental illness can uh, completely plummet at any point. Tragedy can strike a great group of people. And I know that Jesus can meet each individual person in the middle of it. Earlier this week, I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, 
probably saw and read and, and listened to different stories or heard of the chaotic, uh, just heinous mass shooting that happened at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas on Tuesday. Horrible news hit our phones, our TV screens, our social media feeds, and pain probably breaks at the bottom of each of our hearts. Fear maybe even breaks at the bottom of each of our hearts. All, all sorts of different emotions. And, and I know for me personally, on Wednesday, I read about it on Tuesday, kind of heard about it. And then Wednesday morning, I'm sitting with this passage as I'm thinking about what God's going to say through this passage and what he's teaching us today. And I'm thinking about the crowd and I'm thinking of the people who are broken, who are hurting, who are suffering. And Jesus just doesn't shove them away. And as I think of the community down in Texas, I, I sat there and I just started to cry. So I lost it. I was, I was angry. I was frustrated. I went in. I was in my office and then went into the conference room where the rest of the staff was. And I was like, we just need to pray together. So we started praying and tears welled up in my eyes and just annoyed at, at all the just horrific news that was kind of going on with that whole thing. And as I think of the community down in Texas today, there's churches filled with people who are mourning there, there's pastors who have been grieving with families. There's congregations of people who have been fervently praying and caring for people. And there's hundreds, if not dozens, if not millions of people across the world who are wanting answers, trying to figure out why that happened, trying to figure out where God was, trying to understand the complexity of the entire thing. But in the middle of that great tragedy, in the middle of heartache and, and just confusion and all of it, I see Jesus with the crowds. I see Jesus with the masses. Not just meeting them on a big scale type of level, but meeting with each individual person. People who were begging for answers, who wanted something to fix their pain. People who were patiently waiting for maybe years who have been in their suffering or sickness, or whatever it might be. And in the middle of all of that, Jesus meets the people and he heals them, each and every single one of them. I think of the community that's been impacted by it all. And, and I know that there is more, that Jesus is more than ready to step into those dark spaces. He's not afraid of the hard moments. He's not afraid to step into hard seasons or, or places where it gets a little bit messy or things where we just don't seem cleaned up and perfect. Jesus is not afraid to step into those times. But as I sit here and I think about what the text is telling us here, it doesn't say, verse 15, it does not say, Jesus just only healed the people who really loved him. It doesn't say Jesus healed uh, the people who followed him for a little bit afterwards. But it says Jesus healed all of them in that moment. That regardless if they were coming to him and then he healed them and then they ran away and never spoke of the name of Jesus and they never worshiped him again, he still healed them. And if we look back on the chapters before and the time before as we're trying to examine who Jesus is, really as we walk through the gospel, we're looking at his life, it constantly tells us that Jesus has compassion on the crowds. Over and over and over again, Jesus sees the crowds. He sees the people as sheep without a shepherd. And he has great compassion on them and he moves towards them. He steps into those dark moments and he gives them a great shepherd. And so as I've been thinking about just this world and the state of the world right now and everything that's kind of happening, and I think about Texas specifically, I've been praying that God would give wisdom to church leaders. I've been praying that God would give uh, just, that would give people uh, just a knowledge that there is someone who cares 
cares for them. Uh, I've been praying that they would find hope where hope is to be found in Christ and Christ alone. Because I know that even in all of this tragedy, Jesus isn't like surprised by it. Jesus isn't sitting there thinking, I have no idea what to do with this. But he's comfortably, confidently sitting on the throne, individually meeting people. And I've been begging that Jesus would step into the lives of those people and that he would use God's people around them to continue to pour into them, to point them to Christ, to grieve with them, to mourn with them, and to continue to give them great hope in Jesus himself. Jesus moves towards us in the pain and in the mess, the king of the universe, the God of the world who spoke all things into existence, who holds it all in the palm of his hands, who can speak and things are created, that God is present with each one of us. That God can continue to heal our hearts. That God can do great miracles. And that God continues to just step into our lives. And so I've been begging that as we mourn, as we grieve, as we're frustrated, angry, as our hearts are broken, in mess and suffering and pain, I'm begging that Jesus would continue to be compassionate towards the crowds of people, to the people down in Texas and to the people in this very room, each and every single one of us, me too, that I would see Jesus, that I would look to the hope that I have his name, that I would be reminded of the fact that Jesus continues to move towards the crowds, that he knows, hey, at this moment, it wasn't his time to die, but I know looking, looking and reading the rest of the story that Jesus died for me, that I have great hope in Jesus, and you do too. All of us have great hope in Jesus and the fact that he continues to heal and move in our lives, and we can look towards that God. Because we know that this world is broken. I know I'm broken. I know I'm messed up. I know what I think and what I dream of and things that cross my mind and stuff. And as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, man, there's a gracious God who continues to give out forgiveness, abundant grace that's over me. And it's true for each and every single one of us. But Jesus is not just the healing king. He's also the victorious just king. So uh, let's keep reading. Let's read the prophecy from Isaiah. I'm going to start in verse 17. Uh, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout nor, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Matthew gives us this quote out of uh, the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 42. And it's actually the longest Old Testament quote that's in uh, the gospel of Matthew. And so as we're sitting with this quote, why does Matthew place it right here? What's he doing? Why, why is he showing us this servant of the Lord that, that God has chosen, who he delights in? Why is he given this? This is similar language that we read all the way back at Jesus' baptism, right? That the father delights in his son. He's his beloved son with whom he's well pleased. And again, we read the servant, the chosen servant, who proclaims justice to the nation. What is Matthew doing? Why, why is this completely here? Well, he's recalling what the Messiah was like. He's pointing to the fact, hey, you've, you've been witnessing and reading and hearing about the different interactions that Jesus has with the people. You've been witnessing him heal, proclaim the kingdom of God, meet with the Pharisees, be rebuked by the Pharisees, and continue to question them and point them towards the true Messiah. And Matthew is reminding us, here's what the Messiah actually looks like. 
Here's what the prophets once foretold of who Jesus is. And I love that we read here. It says, Jesus was God's chosen servant. What brings light and great joy to my heart as I read that good news is the fact that Jesus was not plan B. Jesus was not the second step where uh, Adam and Eve sinned and everything fell apart and, and the whole world came crashing down. God was like, I don't, I don't know what to do. Ah, Jesus. Uh, no, it, it was his plan from all of the beginning, right? That God knew he was going to send his son to die for us. Jesus is God's chosen servant in whom he delights, who his spirit has been poured out on. Now, the, the Jewish people, they were waiting for a Messiah to come. If you read the Old Testament, you're kind of thinking, okay, clearly over and over and over again, God's promise to Israel, his chosen people, is that they would be a blessing to the nations. It's that he would send someone to come and lead them, to be a king, to rightly lead the people. And over and over again, we see Israel continue to be captive to other people groups, right? If you think of the Exodus, they were slaves in Egypt. And then as you go forward in time, you start to see, okay, Israel grows. They start to do some things right, and they're a big kingdom, and they're following God. They've got a great leader, and then everything crashes because of their sin. And, and then God sends them into exile. Babylon holds them captive, takes them over. And then while they're in exile, God sends these messengers, the prophets. And the prophets are continuing to tell the people, hey, there's judgment on you because you were in sin. But at the same time, there's great hope to look forward to in, in God himself because he's going to send a Messiah. He's going to send a Redeemer. He's going to send a rightful king to lead you home, to bring you to true restoration and what that really looks like, a king to rule and to lead them. But as the people kind of walked along in life and as they kept going forward, they got the vision blurred. They started to picture their own type of king. Right? They started to picture someone who was going to come and take out Rome because at this time, Rome is over uh, Israel and they're taxing them and they're continuing to uh, just be uh, oppressed by Rome. And during this whole time, the people are just begging and waiting for this Messiah to come. And they're thinking it's going to be someone who's going to come in victoriously, going to ride in on a horse. He's going to have his sword. He's going to build an army and he's going to take Rome out. And it's going to be all said and done. Israel's going to be God-chosen people. They're going to be victorious. Everything's going to be great but they had it wrong. They had this own view in their own minds of what the Messiah was supposed to be, but actually Matthew reminds them here. He's saying, here's who you thought the Messiah was, or you thought the Messiah was something else. Here's who he actually is. He, he's a Messiah who will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He, he's not a God who comes in arrogance. He's not a king who's, who's violent, but he's one who's peaceful and compassionate in the streets. He's one who leads his people to true justice, to true victory, that all the nations, not just Jerusalem, all the nations would put their hope in his name. But Israel was blinded by their own version of a king. So the section right above this, if we look at it and we kind of study it and we're thinking, okay, what did we read last week in Matthew chapter 12, 1 to 14? Well, we kind of saw that the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, they were saying, here's what the law is. And Jesus, what he does is he points them and says, you, you're, you have a misunderstanding of what the law actually is and what it was for. And then here in this section, what Jesus is doing, he's saying, hey, you had, the, you had a misunderstanding of the law, and now here you have a misunderstanding of what the Messiah is. 
So he's pointing them to see, here's who I truly am. This is the king. They wanted their own power. They wanted to have this conquering king to overthrow Rome. But the good news is, is that we see that Matthew is showing and revealing to us what type of king Jesus is. He's not a king that we want, but he's a king that we need. And as we look at this, we're like, okay, cool. We have the New Testament, so we're never going to mess it up again, right? No, we continue to blur our eyes with our own version of the king. How often do we do the same thing that Israel did? If we truly kind of search our hearts and start to examine, when I picture Jesus, Jesus is like this, start rattling off a bunch of things, but slowly and surely, Jesus turns into some Jesus that we just paint perfectly in our own mind and we try to fit him in a box and he works this way. This is exactly how Jesus is. This is exactly how he's supposed to be. In reality, we kind of started to make him what we want him to be rather than who he actually is. We, we start to read the scriptures and then if the scriptures disagree with our view of Jesus, we kind of just blur the line or we go, oh no, that's not actually what it means. And we walk right past there. We dance around it or we just ignore it. And we have our own vision of what the king should be. I do this all the time. This happens to me personally. Because I'm sitting here and thinking about, okay, where are moments in my life where I have just completely misthought of who the actual king is? And it probably has happened multiple times to me today already. But as I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, I think back to a moment last August And if you guys remember last August, um, it's when the Taliban kind of took over in Afghanistan and there was a whole huge thing with uh, the airport in Kabul and people are being begging to being let out. They're trying to seek refuge because people are being murdered and a lot of chaos was just ensuing in those moments. And at that time, I had a lot of anger in my heart. I was frustrated at what was happening. I hated the fact that people were being murdered and killed there. I hated the fact that people were clearly trying to, I mean, you saw the pictures on the, on the te- television and the news and everything. It's just terrifying to see what was happening. I was angry that just chaos was ensuing in those moments to where I started thinking. I started pondering and I started praying and begging God, Lord, I just want you to take out the Taliban. I was just begging God to bring justice, to bring it, let it roll like a mighty river is what the, what the prophet Amos says. And that's exactly what I was asking God to do. I was like, just strike them down with thunder. And then it got worse in my own heart because I started thinking, Lord, I don't even want them to hear your name. I hope they never hear the name of Jesus and they can't find redemption. And that's when I knew I was heading towards just wicked cruelty in my heart. And some of you guys might be sitting here thinking like, oh, yeah, they should be wiped out. That was terrible. Why would they ever do something like that? And that's the point. Because if true justice, if God really had justice on them for being murderers, for ensuing all of that chaos, guess what? If we just go back a couple of pages to the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say about murder? If we hate anybody, struggle with anger, we've murdered somebody in our heart. He's not joking when he says that. Like, he's serious. So if I want God to ensure justice on, like, the Taliban in that moment, I also am asking him to have justice on me. I'm asking that he would pour out his wrath on me, too, in that moment. And so that's the whole point is we try to make God a God that we want rather than the God that he actually is and the God that we need. And so Jesus is a king who, who we actually don't 
think about or consider sometimes in our lives. As we ponder and we think about what this Messiah is supposed to be, and even if we look at our whole world today, if we look at it today, what are we thinking? What's the culture telling us? It's telling us if you're the loudest voice in the room, if you're the loudest person in the room, people will listen. If you don't agree with what people are saying, just keep chanting just a little bit louder. Keep speaking all the more. And if people don't listen, talk louder. Keep going. Just to make sure that your opinion is heard. Just to make sure that people say that you're right or completely agree with you. But that isn't the way that Jesus functions. That might be the way that culture tells you to talk, but it's not the way that Jesus instructs us to continue to walk. If he's truly like the king of the world, the ruler of the universe, the one who holds all things in his hand, if he's really the Messiah who's come to save us, then we as his people should continue to walk like him, should we not? Should we continue to follow him and continue to uh, live like Jesus? As, as we look at Jesus, it tells us that he's not going to argue. He's not going to uh, shout in the streets. He's not going to cry out. His voice isn't going to be heard. And, and as we look at his interactions with the Pharisees, because that's where we really see the big pushback. Every interaction that he kind of has with them, they're trying to rebuke him. They're trying to punk him. They're trying to get him to uh, fall into some sort of trap. But how does Jesus respond? They say, you're wrong. And he just starts screaming and telling them about how wrong they are. No. He actually does this really cool thing where he questions, he says questions back to them. And if you pay attention closely, what Jesus is doing in those moments as he's pointing these questions back to them, what he's actually doing is he's trying to get them to realize that he is the Messiah, that he is the king. And so in Jesus' responses, he's, he's not responding in hate, but he's responding in great love towards them. He's pointing them to the truth of who he is. Yeah, Jesus, if we flip a little forward to the end, it, Jesus does rebuke the Pharisees for their corrupt leadership. He, he does rebuke them for what they have been doing. But at the same time, as we look at Jesus and we have our conversations with people, are we responding in the same way that he does? Or are we responding maybe the way that culture does, our world does? Think about social media. It, it's, I pick on social media because it's the easiest place to kind of see it. And we, we all can easily hide behind a phone screen. And we can say whatever we want without actually interacting with people personally. And so when I think of the last week and I see social media, then like that day and the next day and the last couple of days, all it is is a bunch of people just bickering at each other. Start reading the comments and you're like, this is, this is gross. People are just saying crude things to one another time and time again. I don't know that the comment section is a place where you can answer complicated questions. Like, I don't know that you're ever going to try and win, actually win over an argument with somebody through a phone screen in a comment section and you really have no idea who that person is. And the first reaction for people was, Ah, and just posting a bunch of stuff and getting angry and yelling at a bunch of people and, and having arguments over, uh, over the internet. But friends, their first reaction was never to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep, how Christ has instructed us in his scriptures. Jesus was never looking for political solutions to spiritual problems. Never looking for political solutions to spiritual problems. And so in our, action, in our interactions with people, are we argumentative? Are we constantly shouting and being, or are we being gentle and compassionate as our king is? As we have conversations with people and uh, as we see him respond to the leaders, are we responding in the same way? 
Or are we just trying to argue and, and win our arguments and to show people that our view is right, our way is the correct way? Jesus's response was always love and compassion and to pursue the people. So as we disagree with people, whether it's a gospel conversation or like a complicated question to kind of answer and walk through and figure out, how are we actually interacting with people? Are we stepping into cancel culture and just saying they disagree with us, so I'm pushing them away? Are we moving in such a way towards we just respond in hate towards the people, or are we responding as Jesus does, uh, one who will not argue, will not shout, or will not hear his voice in the streets, one who is gentle and compassionate, responding in love? He doesn't, with the Pharisees, he doesn't ever just say, you're wrong, see you later. But as they continue to push up against him and argue with him, he, he withdraws because they're trying to kill him. He doesn't withdraw because he doesn't want to win them over. He withdraws because it's not his time yet to die. So are we trying to win fights or are we trying to win people over for the king? Are we trying to win arguments or are we trying to win people for the kingdom? Do we look more like Jesus or do we look more like the rest of the world? If we were to hop onto our social media feed and if you were to hop onto mine, who would you guess that you're an ambassador for? Would people say that you're an ambassador for your political party or your favorite movement that you line up with? Or with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? As much of the arguing is just honestly us rooting for ourselves. Most of it's just us trying to win for our side and to have the, the better team. But in all of the bickering and quarreling, are we representing something else or are we representing Jesus? I, I, I'm asking the same question for myself. You guys were to hop onto my social media feed. What would you see? Would you see an ambassador for Christ or an ambassador for somebody else? Some of you guys are thinking, well, gee, well, Alex, you put a picture of your lawn up instead of Jesus. So, um, yeah, I put a picture of my lawn. It looks nice right now. But uh, in all reality, though, as, as we look at this, are we embodying who Jesus is? Or are we painting a picture of what, who God is and we're just trying to run our own world? As, as we examine who Jesus is, are we walking like Christ or not? Verse 20 continues to tell us of what Jesus is like. It says, that, uh, it says, he will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. So verse 20, these reeds, they were really common in Israel. They're all over the riverbanks. They're all over the marshes. And so you could get one easily. If one was bruised or broken, you could be like, oh, I'm going to go get another one. And these reeds were actually used to make pens, uh, paper, flutes, whatever, just random things. And so when people were making and creating with them, hey, oh, nope, that one's bruised, so we got to throw it out. Let's go get another one. They were the bruised ones, the broken ones. They're worthless to people. They're pushed off to the side. They're saying, yep, uh, that's nothing. I can go get a clean one, uh, one that's perfect for me. The candle wick is something that if you kind of think about it, okay, if you've got a candle in your house and you lit the candle and it's burning for a while, it gets all the way to the bottom and there's no more wick anymore. So it's just smoldering. The smoke is going. You can't get actually any light. You can't smell the scent of the candle. It's worthless. So you toss it off to the trash. And what Matthew's doing here is he pulls Isaiah into this picture of what Jesus is like and what the Messiah is actually like as a servant king who's gentle to the reeds, who continues to care for the smoldering wick. What he's doing is pointing to the ministry of the servant king. 
The ministry of the servant, compassionate, great king that we have in Jesus is a ministry to those who are suffering, a ministry to those who need help. Because as he's referring to these broken and bruised reeds and the the smoldering wick, he's referring to the people. Because the people who were sick, the people who were hurting, they were usually just kind of cast out. The religious leaders would put them out on the edge and they'd say, nope, that person's messed up. They got leprosy. See you later. Nope, that person uh, is sick. We can't be around them. See see you on the outskirts of town. I don't want to be around you. And yet Jesus's ministry was a step towards those people. He was stepping in spaces to where he could care for them, to help them, to point them to great hope in his name. So my question for us to wrestle with this morning and to ask ourselves is, are we in pain? Are we hurting? Are we angry? Are we frustrated? Lonely? Is there anything that's going on in our hearts that's just leading to chaos and, and a cry for help? I, I'm serious. Ask over the last seven days. Think about your last seven days. Have you ever felt any of those emotions? And if you have, Where'd you run to after it? Is it something where you tried to go get your own fix with vegging out on Netflix or you went to the bottle of alcohol to kind of soothe yourself from a hard day or you uh, just pushed away all the pain and frustration and ran to trying to find your hope and your joy in some person that's in your life? Or did you go and spend great intimacy with Jesus and beg for help? Because you can nuance it in even a a way to make it seem like a really Christian dude to go, oh, yeah, I was was hurting and in pain, and so I begged Jesus, and I asked him to kind of remove it. And that's a good thing, and God could potentially do that. But at the same time, what we're doing is we're asking Jesus to fix our circumstances. We're asking him to be a God who's like a magic eight ball who just does what we want him to whenever we want to, rather than running to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I need help, and I know you're the help I need. Like we, we can get fixated on our circumstances and just say, that's the kind of God that I really need. One who just does everything for me the right way. But if he doesn't answer your prayer the right way, how do you respond to him then? Usually we brush him off because we're painting this picture of a God who we think we need rather than the God that we actually need in King Jesus. If there's anything that this last week has shown us, if there's anything that this last month has shown us, It's that there's devastating, heartbreaking death in this world. As we think of all those things that bring us great anger and just are hard to witness and to read about and to hear, right? God absolutely hates the fact that everything terrible happened down in Afghanistan with the Taliban. God hates the fact that there was just this crazy invasion from Russia into Ukraine. God hates the murder that happens in the schools and in the grocery stores and the things that we read on the Lincoln Journal Star that happened here in our very own town. He hates all of that. But his wrath was enacted on the cross of Christ. And that's where the true justice lies, because we can look to the justice that was done for the sin in the world, and we can have great hope in our view of justice as we look to Jesus, because we know this world is broken. I think it's pretty easy to say that. It's pretty easy to look around and to go, yeah, this place is messed up. I'm messed up. But there's great healing to be found in Jesus. There's victory to be found in Jesus. There's justice that's found in Jesus. 
not in our own personal view of God, but who he really is. He's the God who does not break the bruised reed. He's the God who cares for the smoldering wick. He's the God who is compassionately loving and healing on the broken people. He is the God who gives us hope and whose name we put our hope in. That's the God that we look to in Jesus himself. So my question for you this morning, have you had a wrong view of Jesus? Maybe it's for your whole life and you've had this wrong view of Jesus that he's just some legalistic punk who's up in the air and just saying like, make sure you follow all my rules perfectly, then I'll let you in. Or have you had this view of Jesus that maybe you've kind of painted in your own heart and in your own mind over the last couple of years or months or weeks, and you're just picturing yourself this perfect, just king who fits your mold perfectly? Um, my guess is Jesus doesn't fix, fit, fit your perfect box of the great leader. Because our sin creeps in and we start to paint our own picture of who Jesus is. But the reality is, Jesus is the actual king that we need. Jesus is the healing, victorious, just king that brings hope to the nations, brings hope to us. When it talks about the nations, it's talking about the Gentiles. Some of your versions might say Gentiles. And when you think about that, if Jesus did not bring hope to the nations, we would not be in here. We would not be able to praise Jesus' name or, or even realize that he's come for us. But this prophecy has come true because we have hope. And, and there's maybe a couple, maybe one or two people in the room who have some Israelite history in their family line, but most of us don't. I don't. I'm a Gentile who has hope in the name of Jesus, and I get to thank God for that amazing grace. So would you come to see the true Jesus? Not some Jesus you've made up in your brain or your mind, like maybe the Israelites had of this picture of a Messiah, this great leader who was going to lead them to revolt over Rome, take them out, wipe them away, and that they would be a victorious, true God's chosen people. Or are you picturing the Messiah who comes gentle and lowly, who doesn't shout in the streets? Messiah who brings true justice, true righteousness, and has enacted that on the cross. And on the third day, he claimed his victory. And one day we look forward to the future hope that he's coming back again. He'll restore all the broken things, all the pain, all the hurting, all the tears, all the confusion, all of the answers will be answered with Jesus himself standing victorious. Our hope is not in some temporary solution that might take away some human problems for a little bit. Our hope is not in some uh, broken human policy, but our hope is in Jesus and the salvation that we have in him. Friends, Jesus may not be the king that we expected, but he is the king that we need. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the amazing news that you are the great king of the world. I thank you that uh, you know what true justice is. I thank you that you are a God who heals. I thank you that you are a God who cares for the broken reed like me, who cares for the smoldering wick, who's tired, who's burnt out, who can't uh, express any more light, Lord, but I thank you for the fact that you are the light of the world that we get to look to you and that you continue to bring light to our eyes. God, I pray that as we consider even the broken state of the world and the broken state of our hearts, Jesus, that uh, we would put our hope in you, 
that I would look to you and I would have great answers and knowing that I have intimacy with you, that you meet me one-on-one and that you meet each of us one-on-one, God. That you're not just dealing with us as, as a group of tens of thousands of people and you kind of say, okay, I'm annoyed with you, I'm tired, see you later, but you're a God who invites us in into the brokenness. You're a God who steps in and pursues us in the moments where we don't know what to say. You're a God who continues to flourish in our hearts and give us great hope. So Jesus, I pray that we would respond to that hope. I pray that we would see you for the king that you truly are. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. Uh, Church, we get to respond to the amazing grace of Jesus by taking communion. Uh, This is an amazing opportunity for us to take the bread that I did.